Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome, everyone, to a very special in-person live episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. We don't? Usually. Usually. But actually, that brings us to, before we get into the main show, I would like to make it's kind of a correction, really more of an observation. In the most recent little snap episode that I did on India and Pakistan, I made an observation, and I even said in the episode that it was going to be me doing a little bit of the thinking for you. It was my read on the situation. Here's the problem. when Doing the thinking for you. Just what a... What what was I doing? Just, you've violated everything. The one rule we had. You had one job. One one job. One rule. And, well, so that that thinking for you was something along the lines of this. Pakistan was claiming that India conducted this airstrike, hit dirt, didn't do any damage. India was saying, oh, actually, 300 casualties. And at the time, based on the information that I had, because it was breaking news, I looked at the fact that India released a lot of information about the weapon systems that they used. And a lot of them were precision-guided munitions supplied by Israel to India. And I thought that a reasonable conclusion, I wasn't 100% certain, of course, was if they were going through the effort of releasing all this detailed information about the weapon systems, that there's probably a decent chance that something was actually hit. Otherwise, why actually get into the details of the Spice 2000, you know, whatever, one uh, kilogram. Guided munitions. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the, the other, the, the other, like the counter evidence to that, that I saw that made me suspicious that it must have hit something was that Pakistan was like, no, it totally didn't hit anything. Here's a picture of some dirt. Yeah. And this is what India hit. It's like, wait, this is just a picture of dirt. It could be any dirt. Yeah, exactly. Anywhere. And they both had, of course, clear incentives to say that, you know, Pakistan had incentives to say, oh, India didn't do anything. And India had clear incentives to say, oh, no, we were the best airstrike ever in history. The best airstrike. A beautiful airstrike. It's a great Narendra Modi impersonation, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so here's the problem. Since then, an independent third-party satellite company, Planet Labs, has come out and released imagery, before and after imagery, of the area that was purportedly the target of the Indian airstrike. And all the buildings that were supposedly hit are still there, and there is absolutely no damage done to them. (laughs) And I think at one point, India said something like, oh, yeah, well, the uh, weapon systems we have... It's fake news. It's fake news. They're meant to penetrate the buildings and explode from the inside. So you, you, the buildings would still be there. Maybe there would be some holes. They're very and, small. 
But there, are, there is no holes. Holes Be- are all from the side. Yeah, exactly. Si- sideways holes. Anyways, uh, there are no holes in the in the in the photos. Best best that I can tell. Best that the people analyzing these photos can tell. And so that cast out onto the uh, what I thought at the time was a reasonable conclusion. And this brings up a good point, which is we tend to not make flash episodes like this in, for good reason. For good reason. Um, in part because we don't have the time, but also in part because when you're when you're responding to news as it comes out, then you're just reacting and you don't have time to actually process the information, wait for new new stuff to come in. And that is the problem with other news organizations that just go, 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 whatever happened, we're going to report on it immediately. And so we often don't do shows like that. And that is one reason. And I did a little bit of thinking for you. And the conclusion may very well have been invalid. In fact, we still don't know. India's reasoning, India, the only evidence India has released right now is, is a statement that said, oh, well, we got to the 300 casualty count because we were tracking cell phones in the area and the cell phones we were tracking disappeared after, but they haven't released anything else. So we just don't really know what happened right now. So lesson learned. Exactly. But it's, but it's such a good case study in, you know, we kind of actually followed the same incentives as the media for the regular media for a moment, in part because, you know, our listeners and especially those who like know us personally are like, oh, you guys are smart. You should weigh in on this because like the media just doesn't weigh on it all that well and, and yada, yada, yada. And we're like, yeah, you know, maybe we should do that at some point and put a reconsider lens on what we're seeing. And so we've we've faced enough pressure to do this that, you know, we gave it a swing. And I think, Xander, your, your episode was very good. We got a very nice comment on it, actually, mm-hmm. from someone who's, whose name sounds like they're either from or their family's from or someone in their past is from the Indian subcontinent. And that's all I know, sadly, but that it was a, you know, really good kind of unbiased view about what was going on. So, you know, this was, this was not a total waste of time, but it is one of those things that, you know, that reminds us of kind of why our normal practice is not to chase the news, mm-hmm. chasing the news. It, you know, it's the thing that everyone's really excited about right now. And of course, we talked about this over and over again, that the thing that you're really excited about right now tends to fade into the background pretty quickly and tends to pass and the world tends to move on. And everyone always it's it's just yeah, it's weird. It's all about endorphins. Right. And mm-hmm. and we are more and more, not more and more. We are constantly being kind of conditioned to respond to these endorphin rushes we get when something something is happening. And then, you know, the next day you wake up and the world's no different. Yeah, you go to go to work and life moves on. The way that it, it's, it was presented to me, the, this idea that was very effective at one point was think back four years. So 2015, early 2015, what was the most important thing going on in March 2015? And I don't know. I'd have to go look. But the fact is everyone was just as passionate about what was going on then as they are now. For me, the thing I was definitely paying attention to was ISIS and the sure. desperate battle, the, the desperate war that Iraq and Syria were fighting mm-hmm. to not let the caliphate totally take them over. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that is something. But, you know, but that was very much ongoing. It wasn't mm-hmm. a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, <laughs> this took four years. So speaking of ISIS... Yeah. So today we're going to be we're going to actually going to be answering one of a few listener questions. Listener questions. And one of the reasons we want to focus on this more is we want more listener questions. And we want to remind you that listener questions tend to get answered. So we're going to be going over one listener asked us to comment on the 
the long-term, actually, this is actually a great counterexample. It's like, hey, what have been the long-term consequences of some decisions, some events mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. and how did, how's the world shaken out by it? Um, asked about a few things. One of them was about the U.S. war on drugs and the global drug war, which is an episode that we've prepared, but we're going to do later because we're together in Los Angeles and it's really sunny out. So we're only going to record so much today, but we are going to be talking about the war in Iraq and the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003. So we invaded Iraq in 2003. In uh, case you didn't know. In case you didn't know. And to be fair, you know, maybe we have some listeners who aren't like they're younger and this is now history, right? This happened 16 years ago. Yeah. And I, That's you know, weird. there are astute high schoolers who are, you know, they care about the world and maybe don't I don't I don't know. Anyways, point is... They might listen to educational podcasts. It happens. Yeah. So the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, ostensibly kind of for two reasons. One was to put down al-Qaeda, because supposedly there was a bunch of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And the second was threats from weapons of mass destruction, WMD. There's this story that that Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, had acquired yellow cake, which is like your, your raw uranium ore from, I think, Nigeria or something like that. Um, and it all turned out to be not true. Uh, Al-Qaeda was not there. Um, there is no reason for Saddam Hussein, who was a secular ruler, a secular dictator of the Ba'athist party, to give safe haven to an Islamic jihadist insurgent group that would want to take, you know, usurp him. And in retrospect, you go, oh, yeah, that clearly makes sense. Yeah. And there is absolutely no evidence for WMD found either. But today we're going to be talking about what the long-term consequences of that war were. And as far as Eric and I can tell, there's basically been three biggies. biggies. Exactly. One was the rise of ISIS, and we'll get into how that happened. One was eliminating the primary balance against Iran. And the third was the substantial U.S. debt that was accumulated as a result of the war and the limit the limitations of being bogged down in Iraq that kind of prevented the U.S. from focusing more on other areas of the world, which is now needing to do more and more of with Russia and China. Right. So first, let's let's set this up demographically. So in particular, this would be important both for thinking about ISIS and thinking about Iran. Mm -hmm. So, oh, just side joke. I saw a stand-up comedian once. He's a big metalhead. His friend's a big metalhead. Mm-hmm. And in the 1990s, his friend was like, I'm going to get a going to get a tattoo of my favorite metal band on my arm. And the guy was like, you're going to regret it. You're absolutely going to regret it. And he's like, no, how could I possibly regret it? And now this guy with on his forearm is living his entire life with a tattoo that says ISIS. Oh, no. <laughs> so rough. <laughs> so... Anyway, so let's talk about Iraq. So Iraq is majority Shia. So, you know, Islam split basically right away, like many religions, as soon as someone showed up and was like a prophet or a savior. Then a bunch of people disagreed over what was going on. That, that is a gross, gross oversimplification. Yeah, the Shia said Alish is the rightful, uh, who was the... He was like the, the stepson, I think, of Muhammad. Yeah. And the other guy, uh, the other sacked the Sunnis. So the Shia said Ali and the Sunnis they said Ali. And yeah, the, the guy, Al-Baghdadi is the leader of ISIS. Yeah. So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr comes from uh, the Sunni sect who believe that Abu Bakr should have been the inheritor. The inheritor of yeah. Muhammad's yeah. leadership. So the Sunnis are the vast majority within 
Islam mm-hmm. as a whole and led all of the like led the Ottomans and led the various caliphates of the past. But Iraq is majority Shia, as is Iran. Iran is almost all Shia. So Persian, they're ethnically Persian, religiously Shia. Iraq, the Shiites are mostly ethnically Arab and religiously Shia. And and so Iraq and Iran are both Shia, and but in Iraq or both majority Shia in Iran, it's 98%. In Iraq, it's 65%. In Iraq, the rest is Sunni. And this has created an interesting dynamic through the Second Iraq War where the Sunnis, oh, I mean, throughout the entire Ba'athist rule yeah. of Iraq, the Sunnis, a minority who were largely in charge, were fearful of Shia dominance, you know, taking over the government and oppressing them, and which is a reasonable fear because the uh, Sunni-led Ba'ath Party had dominated and oppressed the Kurds and Shia, Shia Arabs throughout their reign. And so throughout the war, when the Ba'athist, Sunni Ba'athist government was toppled, the Sunnis were thinking, oh, no, the Shias are going to take over this whole like democracy thing because there's lots of them and uh, they're going to oppress us. So the the U.S. ostensibly had to, or not ostensibly, was ideally planning for that you know, planning for that dynamic to arise and was ready to walk carefully that line about, you know, how do we deal with this change in power mm-hmm. between these two groups, one of which may feel vengeful, one of which may feel afraid. Yeah. And the one thing we know about uh, U.S. war plans is that they're always well thought out and every single eventuality is planned for. Clearly, that, that didn't exactly happen. And when the U.S. withdrew most of its forces in 2011, this created a situation where the Iraqi Sunnis were afraid that Shias were going to dominate the government and oppress the Sunnis. And this was essentially w- one of the factors that led to the genesis of ISIS, an insurgent Sunni jihadist group that was trying to protect Iraqi Sunnis against the oppression of the Shias. So and there is kind of similar dynamics in Syria, but opposite in a way, because Syria is actually majority Sunni but ruled by a minority Shia sect called the Alawites. So al-Assad is an Alawite. He and his father have been in charge of the country for a while. And when his rule was threatened, ISIS also rose up in Syria to prevent domination by the minority Shias to protect the Sunnis ostensibly. So in both of these nations, we're looking at Shias who are in charge In Iraq, this is new. In Syria, this is old. In Iraq, it's the majority. In Syria, it's the minority. But in this area of eastern Syria and western Iraq, it's a majority, vast majority Sunni area of Sunnis who are, you know, with Sunnis who are looking at power vacuums. So in Syria, it was because of just the general uprising during the Arab Spring. In Iraq, it was after the United States left, you know, withdrew its combat troops in 2011. So all this happened in about 2011. You had a bunch of Sunnis worried about Shia dominance, looking at a power vacuum, many of whom had already been part of long-term insurgencies Mm -hmm. against these governments. So ISIS didn't necessarily cause the, you know, uh, cause the Syrian civil war, but certainly took advantage of the power vacuum that arose once Assad's rule was challenged. And as we all know, power vacuums always lead to peaceful transitions of power, right, right Eric? Right, totally. Whenever you have a revolution and all the rules get taken away, uh, someone comes in peacefully and says, here's the new rules that we're all going to obey. And everyone goes, great! Yeah, clearly that doesn't happen. And the people who 
end up succeeding and taking over from the power vacuums are essentially the entities that are most willing to kill other people because the entities that aren't willing to kill other people are killed by the guys who are. And that's kind of how those things very often shake out. And so in transitions where there are power vacuums, what the, the typically, typically in, in successful transitions from power vacuums, there is some concretion. For example, the United States after World War II had conquered and conquered Western Germany and Japan. And a big part of what the United States did in order to prevent a power vacuum and also prevent a still fairly powerful and now resentful group from resisting the new order was they kept some of the old order in a lot of ways. So if you've seen the movie Patton, Patton is being interviewed, uh, you know, Patton who hates Nazis probably almost as much as he hates Soviet communists. He's actually keeping, you know, during his, and this is a military led occupation. He is keeping a lot of little Nazis in power in in places of like government bureaucracy and, and running the trains and things like that. And the interviewers are giving him a hard time and he goes, who else is going to do this job? Nobody's done it before. Yeah. So, you know, what, what can I do? And then similarly in Japan, you know, the emperor stepped down, but otherwise like the entire power structure stayed the same and that allowed for some peaceful transitions. Unfortunately in Iraq, the, you want to say something? The, the emperor, I mean, he was still around. He was just a ceremonial role. Yes. In Japan. That was like part of the, part of the deal, I think. Right. Quote unquote unconditional surrender, and we gave him that, and he didn't do anything any right. afterwards. Yeah, right. So part of the success of the transition from in Germany was saying, "All right, you were part of the Nazi government in the past. Here, here are the conditions under which you are going to get you are going to get thrown in jail forever. Here are the conditions under which we're just going to let it go and walk away." Right. Unfortunately, in Iraq, the debathification policy of the United States was saying, "Well, if you're part of the Baathist government, you're out." You're just out. And so all these formerly powerful Bathists, many of whom had like strong connections, weapons, all sorts of stuff, were now out and had no way back in. And so not only were you looking at being a minority population that was potentially suppressed, oppressed by a majority population, but you were formerly powerful, you are now resentful, and you, you still have a lot of connections that allow you to sort of become powerful again. So the net effect of this was when ISIS began to take advantage of this power vacuum and take over territory, you had a lot of former Ba'athist party members. And recall, Ba'athist was a Sunni majority, but a secular party. It was not it was not a religious institution right. joining ISIS, which was an explicitly religious institution because they needed to do something right. They needed protection uh, from they, they they needed to work with some sort of armed group in in the power vacuum sort of situation. But as soon as you took Saddam Hussein out, who is the you know secular dictator that basically oppressed everyone equally, and it was his strong hand that kind of kept Iraq kind of pacified. He was gone, and that created the opportunity for a lot more intersectarian violence. So. Sunnis and Shias began to fear each other a lot more when that one guy who pressed them both equally disappeared. It also paved the way for a lot more Iranian influence in Iraq because, again, Iran is uh, almost entirely Shia, Iraq, majority Shia, and they're right on the border with one another. And while in the past, Iraq and Iran had basically balanced each other. They were bitter enemies, certainly since 1979, but realistically for a while before then, too. And... 
that was only possible with a relatively strong Iraq. And once the U.S. came in and clobbered everyone and there was no one in charge, Iraq was now much weaker than Iran and presented a lot of opportunities for Iran to take more control over their neighboring country. Right. And similarly, if we look in, so, you know, part of these consequences from Iraq are that we had this powerful ISIS or this very powerful ISIS that was able to exert a lot of influence and take over a lot of territory in Syria as well. And luckily, you know, we learned from Iraq that if we topple an unpopular dictator in a multi-sectarian, multi-ethnic country, you know, it would lead to sectarian and ethnic violence and a lot of insurgencies. So luckily we didn't throw a lot of resources at supporting trying to topple a dictator in Syria because that would have had terrible consequences and lead to a prolonged civil war as well. So luckily we learned our lesson, didn't try to do the same thing. Yeah, definitely didn't support any Syrian rebels in the first couple of years of the war. Right. Yeah. So as ISIS crumbled a lot of the, you know, power or ISIS, sorry, ISIS was not wholly responsible for the crumbling of power in Syria. It was largely responsible for the crumbling of what little power had been built up in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And as both of these places became kind of almost anarchic, as far as, you know, the perspective of international relations goes, you had other countries being able to move in and exert influence in Syria. This was Turkey, Russia, and, you know, the U.S. competed there for a while and has largely given up other than that Kurdish territory to the north. In Iraq, really the only other place for for Shiites who were trying to, you know, rule the legitimate government of Iraq and were opposed by ISIS, who had taken over half the country, they looked to Iran, who was powerful, who was friendly, who was also Shia, and uh, turns out provided also a lot, whole lot of troops and manpower, money, military equipment to be able to fight ISIS and prop the government up. Yeah, when when ISIS first really became powerful. In so like the 2014 time period, the Iraqi security forces, which was essentially like the lawful or legitimate legitimate security forces of the Iraqi government at the, the time, army. yeah, the army, the ISF, the army, they fled. They turned and fled when confronted by ISIS. Even though in some times, in some places, they were outnumbering the invading or the attacking ISIS hordes fifteen to one. They, they just, just said, "F yeah. this, we're out of here." They had no bones in that fight, right? So ISIS was a huge threat to Iraq back then. And the forces that actually end up pushing back and defeating ISIS in Iraq were primarily these groups called the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF, also sometimes referred to as the Popular Mobilization Units, PMU. You'll see both of those acronyms. Now, there is no single entity called the PMF. It is a conglomeration of lots of smaller militias that are majority Shia, but not entirely Shia. There's plenty of... Sunni Arabs and Kurds that are also involved in some of these these entities, but they're majority Shia, and many, but not all, are either explicitly or implicitly funded and supported by Iran. And sometimes this can, this can be money. Iran will actually directly fund these units. Sometimes it's arms. They will deliver arms to these units. And the size of these units vary greatly, like from a couple hundred to like, 10 to 20,000, and sometimes the estimates are even larger than that, depending. The larger ones tend to be explicitly pro-Iranian. There are some PMF groups that that are Shia and not pro-Iran, that are sort of controlled by this guy, Moqtada al-Sadr, who is now basically in charge of Iraq, even though he doesn't hold an official position. Some are loyal to this cleric called al-Sistani, who's also Shia, but opposes Iranian influence in Iraq. It gets kind of complicated very quickly. But the point is, Iran... 
either overtly or covertly controls many of these PMF groups, funded their fight against ISIS in 2014. And it was in large part due to Iranian support of the PMF groups that ISIS was defeated in Iraq. Uh, and they will say, no thanks to the U.S. is clearly the Iranian talking point. Right. So that's one way in which Iran has come to exert a lot of control in Iraq because these groups have not been dissolved after. And in fact, in some ways, have become more officially incorporated into the command hierarchy of the Iraqi security forces. They've been more legitimized, and the Iraqi government gives money directly from the Iraqi government budget to these PMF forces, not all equally. And this is the other way in which Iran controls or exerts a lot of influence in Iraq, which is pro-Iranian leaders have positions in the Iraqi government. And there is this one position, I forget what it's called, that essentially decides how Iraqi government money is dispersed to different militia groups, different PMF militia groups. And the guy who was in that office for a while was an explicitly pro-Iran person who had, you know, long-term ties with Iran. And he was deciding how to disperse Iraqi government money. Right. So the long-term consequences here are that there's been a pretty dramatic shift from late 80s into the 90s. So remember in the 80s, the United States funded the like horrible, uh, supported at least the horrible dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, who used weapons of mass destruction against the Iranians in a war in order to check and keep, you know, essentially to keep Iran a, a revolutionary, explicitly theocratic, explicitly like evangelical, theocratic, spread the Islamic revolution kind of country in check, right? The long-term interest of the United States, largely speaking, the West is to prevent a, if we think about the geopolitics, is to prevent a united, you know, Middle Eastern, aggressively expansionist Islamic state from re-rising. If we think about, again, we're, remember geopolitics looks back on history in a big way. And if we think about the Islamic caliphate of the second millennium, right, the like entire second millennium of, you know, post, you know, 1000 to, to basically 1900 CE, you know, they grew from this relatively small area and like just washed over all of the Middle East, all of Northern Africa into Turkey and then well into uh, took over all of Spain, took over all of the Balkans. I believe they beat the Russians in a war and were knocking on the gates of Vienna when, you know, the Swedes and Poles had to go bail them out. And like the Poles, any Polish people who are listening are going to be like, huzzars, because like there's this, you know, there's this like cool battle where the that uh, what is it? The Return of the King plays out in the Lord of the Rings series. Really? Yeah. So the it's it's the huzzars, like when Gondor is being besieged. That's a reference to the. That's a reference to the besiegers are the Ottomans. And uh, when. Oh, gosh. Lord of the Rings fans are going to hate me Um, (laughs) when someone comes to relieve them. Essentially, it's the Hazars who are like who were these. It was it was like Poland's big moment where these guys uh, had like there are these mounted cavalry knights who have these huge wings Mm -hmm. coming off of them. And when they're going fast, the wings roar. They're like with the wind going through them. And they they beat the Ottomans and essentially stopped the Ottomans from taking over all of Europe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're certainly in Vienna. Least, yeah, yeah, certainly Vienna and like the eastern half of Europe. So anyway, the idea of like a largely speaking united Middle East with an aggressively expansionist, theocratic, revolutionary ideology, not good for the West. So the United right. States, very interested in keeping those religious, theocratic, expansionist, revolutionary countries in check. And so back in the 80s, it was like, oh, look at all these nations who are very secular, right? Iraq, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, sort of. The problem, so that was a really long work up to part of the problem now is that Iraq is more explicitly aligned with Iran and aggressively expansionist, theocratic, revolutionary state. And what it's done is it's weakened the ability for U.S. allies in the Middle East to pressure Iran into keeping it from messing around in other places, such as Yemen, such as Syria, such as Lebanon, and I'm sure other parts. And so the the capacity of the United States and its allies to pressure and contain Iran has decreased. Right. Before the balance was maintained between Iraq and Iran, once Iraq was taken out of the picture, Iran expanded. Right. I mean, th- that's a really basic geopolitical summary of it. And whereas in the past, there's sort of this balance between Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Now it's kind of like Iran and Saudi Arabia and to a lesser extent, Turkey, even though that's becoming. So it's changed. As a result of Iraq being substantially weakened by the U.S.'s invasion, the entire balance in the Middle East has changed. So that's, that is the lasting consequence, at least for now, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The other way I like to I like to frame this is, you know, power transition theory was like my big, mm-hmm. you know, it's the big hill I die on. And so the idea of power transition theory is that stability is best maintained when there is a really, really powerful side and a not so powerful side, right? Pax Britannica, Pax Americana, Pax Ro- Romanica. Romanica. Romana. 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 Yeah, Thank Pax you. Romana. And the original. The original, yes. The OG Pax. <laughs> That's why we still call it Pax, because it's Latin. Yeah. And Iran, while like a pretty big country and very populous, like 70 million people and, and, you know, aggressively revolutionary and all this stuff. Back in the 80s, like they didn't have a whole lot of friends. It was sort of them against the Middle East because all the Arabs, all the Arabs and the Sunnis were like, those people are crazy. We want nothing to do with them. And so you had Iraq right up on their border, who was also powerful, but secular and wanted nothing to do with Iran. And, you know, if Iran looked around, like the Turks weren't going to help them, the suit, the, sorry, the Saudis weren't going to help them. The Jordanians weren't going to help them. Like, you know, it was, it was much easier to say, okay, there's this big block of not necessarily United, but anti-Iranian 
forces mm -hmm. to the west of Iran, and then India, who also kind of wanted nothing to do with any of this, and you know Pakistan, very Sunni, all that stuff. And now there's much less of a really big, powerful block that can, you know, that can just look at Iran and go, eh, forget, you know, like don't mess with us. It's much closer to parity. And that always, you know, that always creates a substantial amount of risk for further conflict. Mm -hmm. Yes. So another consequence of the Iraqi war, and it's not explicitly the Iraq war, it's just sort of like the war on terror over the last 20 years generally. So Iraq and Afghanistan has been an incredible accumulation of U.S. debt because it costs a lot of money to wage a war, especially a war without a discrete goal or objective in mind that just kind of drags on interminably. And remember how in, in 2000, when George W. Bush came into office, the U.S. was running a government surplus? Like they, we were spending less than we were taking in. And I know it's crazy to think about. You know, young young listeners who were like, what? what? <laughs> a surplus? What is a surplus? Is that yeah. like a like a military surplus store? Yeah. No. <laughs> and I mean, it is, but it's not what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So clearly the, the wars aren't the only reason that we were unable to continue running a budget surplus and we went into deficit and accumulated a lot of debt. There was the recession, the tech, the tech bubble that burst in sort of like 2000, 2001. There would have been more government spending in order to counter that regardless. And we would have had to go into Afghanistan sort of regardless as well, assuming that the 9-11 attacks did happen. So that would have cost money one way or another. But kind of sitting in Iraq for almost 10 years without a really clearly defined plan also ended up costing a lot of money. Well over a trillion dollars. Well over a trillion dollars. And the accumulation of debt puts a lot of pressure on the U.S. in the long term because it means that as interest rates go up, more money of each annual budget must be allocated towards debt service, which means less money that can be spent on other things. So the debt is sort of the hangover from this war that the U.S. is going to have to continue dealing with regardless of how involved it stays in the Middle East. Right. And so one of the nice things about having, you know, the, the contrast is when you have low debt and a low deficit and you have fairly low interest rates, when something comes up where you need to throw a bunch of money at the problem, you can do it. Mm -hmm. When you have huge debt, a high deficit already and high interest rates, and we've got almost historically high debt. Yeah. Pretty much historically high, you know, the post-World War II era, historically high debt, historically high deficits. It means that when something comes up, you go, we don't have money to throw at this problem. Right. We either need to jack up taxes, we need to cut spending somewhere else, or we need to not do this thing that we would otherwise like to do. This can be domestic. It can be, you know, healthcare related. It can be green energy related, or it can be foreign. It could be, I don't know, the Russians decide they're going to invade Ukraine. Right. And the idea of now, I mean, the idea of getting into war with the Russians is dodgy for a lot of reasons. So maybe not the best example. Yeah. But, you know, the United States, let's say we want to expand our Air Force or our Navy or or, you know, something else comes up that we can't predict today mm -hmm. that we would otherwise need to get involved in. The idea of bearing those costs is a lot more difficult than it used to be. It is a limitation on U.S. power that other smart actors are aware of. Exactly. If you look at what the U.S. got in exchange for the trillions of dollars in debt accumulated over time. Nothing. I, not only nothing, but worse than nothing. Because yeah. instead of like the continuation of a status quo that maybe the U.S. didn't like, it actually worsened the situation, gave Iran a free pass to the Middle East for a while. That's changing now, yeah. clearly. But ruined the balance of power and kind of screwed the pooch for itself in the Middle East in exchange for lots of money. Right. So really... a. Uh, I would say kind of like a historically bad strategic decision. 
Certainly, I don't know of order of magnitude Vietnam, but definitely in that direction. It screwed up a whole region relative to U.S. interests for a lot of money. What's interesting, actually, is you when you said we got nothing out of it. I remember. I remember. Uh, I remember. I, yeah. <laughs> you remember? I remember. I remember. <laughs> so I remember, you know, I was in late high school and then college at this time. And, you know, friends of mine would march around with signs that said no blood for oil, no blood for oil. As if the United States was going to go in and just like take oil from Iraq. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back here for calling like that doesn't seem possible. That just seems like not, you know, like unless we're going to become the government and literally colonize the place. We can't extract oil from Iraq in any way that we weren't already getting it. And what ended up happening to the oil in Iraq was that the government of Iraq, which was not the United States, it was a government of Iraqi people, decided, well, this oil belongs to the nation already, right? It's not a private resource. It's been a nationalized resource for a long time, as is a lot of oil in a lot of places, right? We tend to privatize it. They nationalize it. What they did was they set up a bidding system where different companies, private companies, could come in and bid on how to extract that oil. And they, would, you know, and they got paid a certain number of dollars per barrel extracted and then handed over to the Iraqi government. And the winning bids were largely from Chinese companies because they could do it cheap for like a buck sixty a barrel. And in part because it's really easy to extract oil in the Middle East, you just basically stick a straw in the, in the sand and oil comes out. And so the thing is, ultimately, the United States did not gain any preferential access to oil in Iraq for this invasion because it gets sold on the open market at a given price, just like Brent or WTI or something like that. Anyone can buy it. And, you know, it's also particularly far away and, and hard to get to. Like it was not people said, you know, no blood for oil as if the United States was going to go get a bunch of oil out of invading Iraq. And it didn't. I was under the impression that, I mean, and I'd have to do more research on this, but companies like Halliburton did, did get a lot of contracts to extract oil from Iraq to produce oil. And I mean, that's how they generate revenue is oil production, right? You sell more oil, that, that turns into more revenue and therefore the opportunity for more net profit because it is a matter of volume. So I thought they, that a lot of American companies did, in fact, and were able to grow revenue as a result of contracts gained in Iraq after the war. A lot of U.S. companies got a lot of contracts for rebuilding infrastructure in Iraq that were funded by the United States government. So this is like why, you know, the Halliburton controversy was that like Halliburton was contracted by the United States to build a lot of stuff. You know, because we had this idea that, oh, if we build a bunch of infrastructure, there won't be, they'll love the U.S. and there won't be an insurgency and this will stop the Sunni insurgency and everything will be fine. Halliburton did get a lot of those contracts, which I know Dick Cheney was the former CEO. Turns out Halliburton's been getting all the contracts from the United States since Vietnam, right? It's just mm. a huge contract. Like this, this, is, this is actually nothing new. Mm. But, but what I now need to look up is there may have been a temporary period when the United States was largely speaking in charge in trying to get the, the Iraqi oil machine back up and running in order to fund the government that, you know, like some U.S. companies may have gotten that for a while, but it, but it went to pretty quickly. It went to an open bidding system mm. that's U.S. Some U.S. companies got some of those bids. Some European companies got some of those bids and Chinese companies got a lot of these bids. There was no like they're in the end. There's no preferential access to oil for the U.S. government and U.S. companies, U.S. oil companies have no access to that oil. Yes, certainly a lot of U.S. companies made a lot of money 
in mm-hmm. mostly from U.S. taxpayers, mm-hmm. um, but no, but the United States as a country and U.S. owned corporate oil corporations did not get access to new streams of oil. The Iraqi government, you know, having nationalized all that oil, still kept all the oil and sells that oil on the open market. Interesting. Okay. I don't know a whole lot about that. Yeah. I do have to, now now that we've got a controversial position of mine, uh, it's it's controversial only because it was so widely assumed that it must be true, I think, by so many people of my generation that like, oh, of course the U.S. is going to get a lot of oil. Of course companies are going to get a lot of oil. We're not going to question this. And now like... I, I will put stuff in the show notes because I know this is like the burden of proof is on me because the assumption is so widespread that this happened. But I will I will put it in the show notes. But anyway, the U.S. got got not a lot out of it, including not oil. That said, it's not like the U.S. wouldn't go to war to secure oil sources if it needed to because the U.S. can't wage war, can't run an economy without access to energy. And this is not new. All great powers have done this in the past with whatever energy they needed at the time. And in 1973, I was reading this recently, I forget where, but you know, Saudi oil or OPEC oil embargo, the U.S. Kissinger basically overtly threatened Saudi Arabia that the U.S. would invade Saudi Arabia if they kept this going. They said, okay. look, you know, we need this oil for our security. And if this is going to be a problem, then we're just going to take it from you. Right. So it's not like the U.S. wouldn't do something like that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It just yeah. seems like that that wasn't, wasn't making that case. It's just not. It's just oh, it's just another example of how we actually didn't get anything from Iraq. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like because someone not. might go like, well, at least we got access to oil. Nope. Didn't. Yeah. Or at least not preferential access. Right. We got the, the market access was already there. Iraq is still part of OPEC. Uh-huh. Right? So like that, not a lot changed there. The oil we got was from fracking that came yeah. So, yeah. and and that actually, what's interesting is that changes. You know, your point about the United States potentially being being willing to, you know, use military force to secure oil sources. The need for that has dropped substantially because we have so much access to oil in our own country, and also access from our friendly buddies to the north, Canadians. Hey, buddies. Yeah. That, hey, buddies. They're able to. They're they're now such a big net oil exporter. Largely to the United States because like ninety nine percent of yeah. Canadian oil goes to the U.S. Yeah, so you know the continent, this continent is providing so much readily accessible oil and, in particular, natural gas mm-hmm. that you know, we've actually the United States is for the first time in a, in many decades become a net hydrocarbon exporter. Mm-hmm. So we still import some oil, but we export a ton of natural gas. I think we still import something like. 60% of our oil consumption. That might be true. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is Canadian because I mostly don't count that. Well, okay, no, but it's more complicated than that too because like just not all crude oil is the same, right? right. And that's like oil is oil is oil. And it's it's not because it, it's, a, it's a function of what oil products are needed in a country because you can't yes. put crude oil in your car and, fuck, and you know run it. Right. You need to refine it. And different refineries can refine different types of crude oil depending on how heavy it is, which yes. is like a have to do with sulfur, uh, sulfur content, and right. Uh, well, heaviness, heaviness, and sourness. So sourness is sulfur content, and then what's heavy? Heaviness is um, hydrocarbon chains are various lengths. So uh, like methane is basically the shortest, and then there's there's various lengths of hydrocarbon chains, and then there's also how much hydro is in the hydrocarbon. So if you think of the oil sands in northern Alberta. That has very heavy, very sour stuff called bitumen. It's not crude yet. What they have to do to get it up to spec is 
a whole lot of very expensive processing that I won't get into here. The synthetic crude that they create, they've designed it with their with upgraders, which are like kind of a half step towards refineries to be able to create very clean oil. So the crude that the synthetic crude that comes out is great. The Bakken crude is garbage. So it's heavy, it's sour, and so the refineries that are able to process it have a special price advantage because they're able to buy this very cheap oil that's not as valuable because it's heavy and sour and move it. The two biggest ones there are St. John, New Brunswick. So that's that's a huge processor of Bakken oil. And that most of that gets sent to uh, the Northeast United States, Boston and New York. And then the second one is the Denver Commerce City Refinery, which is also huge and also very good at processing processing that kind of stuff. The Houston refiners are not so good at it because they're so used to importing very nice oil from Texas, Venezuela, the Middle East. I know that a lot of shale oil is light and not very heavy. Oh, so shale oil is both. Yeah. So the thing is, the crazy thing about shale oil is it is it covers the entire gamut from being gas, like just straight up methane gas, well, that's- like natural gas, all the way down to and these are all hydrocarbons, right? So it covers the entire mess all the way down, all the way up from from like propane and methane all the way down to very heavy. Right. But, but what I'm saying is you just said Bakken is very, very heavy, but a lot of oil taken from shale in the U.S. is light. Yes. And so as I understand, the U.S. will export a lot of this lighter oil. Yes. Which some other countries may have the ability to refine because it yes. doesn't require as much work, whereas the industrial base in the U.S., means that it is particularly well-suited to refine very, very, very heavy crude, which is why, for example, we're the primary buyer of Venezuelan oil because right. it's very, very heavy. Yeah, you got that. The U.S. is the main buyer of Venezuelan oil. Yep. So just because the U.S. produces more oil now doesn't mean that the U.S. is consuming all the oil it produces. It's right. all exporting some because different countries have different refining capabilities. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. As, far as, as far as national strategic... National strategic and, and like security prerogatives, the United States can like we have the we have you know between the United States and Canada, we have substantial refining capacity for both light oil and heavy mm-hmm. heavy oils. The reason I brought up the Bakken specifically is because if you think about the Canadian oil, most of the stuff coming from F, uh, Alberta is very standard mm-hmm. because the upgraders make it make synthetic crude very standard, and the stuff coming out of the Bakken region is very mixed. Light oil is easy to process. Heavy oil is more expensive right. to process. And there's a the North America has the special capacity to, to your point, process that very heavy right. stuff. And so it's actually like dramatically changed how pipelines work. And that's one of the reasons Keystone is like strategically important because it gives the United States even like easier, more consistent access to heavy oils that that only it and Canada, not only only, but it and Canada have an advantage in producing. So we have gone way off the rails here, but yeah, I think had, the important, what's that? We had no, we had no plans to talk yeah. about oil or shale. So, so I think, the, but the important part of this is that one of the, one of the major geopolitical consequences that did not happen because of Iraq was a major shakeup in oil access for most of the world, mm-hmm. where based on what we just discussed, oil access strategically is still a hypercritical part of how countries design, especially major countries who want to be able to wage offensive wars against other major nations with air power, sea power, et cetera, um, and you know, just moving armies and such, that is still such a major part of their strategy. As we were, as Xander and I were discussing last night, 
Amateurs study tactics. And professionals study logistics. And access to your primary source of fuel for your logistics is such a major strategic issue that it's it's not unreasonable to assume that when the United States, you know, to initially assume that when the United States invades Iraq, there's probably some plan to get a bunch of the oil. But the imperative for getting access to Middle Eastern oil for the United States is now not zero, but it has dropped. It has dropped. Yeah. It's not as important as it was. Still yeah. pretty important. Right. Especially because, like, it's not just a matter of the U.S. being able to buy that oil. But if, like, if five million barrels a day of oil falls off the global market, prices are going to go way up and that's going to hurt the U.S. economy. So there's it's just about it's also about total global supply and not just the amount that the U.S. needs to buy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, global trade, preserving open, open global trade and market because the United States, its approach to, you know, global global access to resources is it's it's strategic. Its fundamental approach is create an open market and ensure you know, global transit and global trade, it will be good for the U.S. in particular because the United States has essentially like, you know, it sits in the middle between Europe and Asia. Both of those seas go to the U.S. more easily than they go to each other. Both mm-hmm. of those markets go to the U.S. more easily than they go to each other. That free open trade across international waters is of great interest to the United States, as opposed to like the old mercantile approach of trying to monopolize access through force and through colonization by trying to monopolize access to certain resources and deny it to deny it directly to others by having access to it. If the United States wants to deny access to resources to its enemies, it uses its Navy Mm -hmm. to blockade it. Naval power. So thank you to Russell Waldman who asked the question about Iraq He also asked about the war on drugs and the Yugoslav wars. We will do another episode on the war on drugs. And we already talked a little bit about the wars, the dissolution of Yugoslavia in the episode that we did on nationalism, on Balkan nationalism, Serbian nationalism in particular. And we'll put a link up to that on the show notes. We we might not do a second show on that, but we'll we'll be sure you have access to it. We also have an outstanding request from from my friend Amea Agascar, who asked about the opium wars between the UK and China, and then subsequently UK, France, and US and China. And we will also do one on that forthcoming. So hang tight, more good stuff to come. In the meantime, uh, as always, remember, don't let the pundits, including us, do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. We're out, we're off to LA to have some fun. Cheers, folks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.